Would it surprise anybody here if I started this talk off by saying that the American church is weak or soft or damaged or brittle like grandma's fine china? Probably not. For the most part, that is nothing new to any one of us, whether Christian or unchristian, church or unchurched. This is something most have come to know and expect from the church as a whole. It should blow our minds. It really should blow our minds that the church has gone from one of the most influential vehicles in humanity to now a marginalized, you know, pair of outdated rollerblades. Like we have really changed. The church has changed. The church has its challenges. Former chaplain of the United States Senate believes so as well. And he said very famously, in the beginning, the church was a fellowship of men and women centered on the living Christ. Then the church moved to Greece, where it became a philosophy. Well, then it moved to Rome, where it became an institution. Next, it moved to Europe, where it became a culture. And finally, it moved to America, where it became an enterprise. See, marketing has replaced mission and branding over kingdom and addition over multiplication, flash before faithfulness, self before others, comfort before attendance, sing if it's catchy, repent on our terms, redefining the uncomfortable, and passivity before participation. The church has been dragged to the fringe of reality. Through the dirt and mud of politics and government and universities and media, I mean, it's clear, you just pop open Twitter or whatever, that the church is laughed at. The church is laughed at, or it's yelled at, or it's cursed at, or it's shivered at, or it's shunned and cast aside by society and culture. And hear me when I say this. Hear me when I just said all of that. Could it be that this is exactly what the church today needs? Everything I just said, is that exactly what the church needs? Some heat. Some heat to harden the clay or, or refine like fire or to boost us like, a, you know, like a, a missile to behold the magnitude of awe of everything that this is, of what we have here today. See, if we've learned anything from the book of Acts, which we've been sort of like pilgrim, you know, like pilgriming through, pilgriming, how do you say it? We've sort of been journeying through over the last 12 months. We've sort of been journeying through it's that what we realized is that anytime, or if you know anything about church history, anytime that the government or really any external pressure seeks to blow out the embers of a church or a Jesus community, what do they do? They actually fan into flame and the church flourishes. The church thrives. And knowing that, could it lead us to think that the reason for the heartbreak that is the vast majority of the American church it's because we have it so good. Is that maybe why the American church is in the position that it's in? Because we just have it so good? Like a giant Snuggie? Anybody ever worn a Snuggie? It's heavenly. Jerry, you raise your hand. To think that the church here and now is just, right? The church is easy. The church here and now, it's just convenient. Christians, we should welcome any change that burns away the fluff and plush of Christendom. 
and ushers in the exposure and awareness of where exactly our of exactly where our loves and our needs and our loyalties and our motives and our intentions truly stand. Did you get that? That's what heat does. It burns away the fluff. And it makes this come alive. It makes us come alive. It makes us realize why we're here. It makes us realize why we're here. Because there has been a shift in however many years to however many decades from what Gandhi has said so sharply. You guys remember what Gandhi said? I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. I like your Jesus, but I do not like his church. I like your Jesus, but I do not like those who consider themselves part of this community. But now hear me. There has been a cutting divide from that to purely, I like your church, but I do not like your Jesus. Equaling fluff. Well, I need to explain. I like your music, but its subject matter is kind of bland. I like your fat pastor who makes stupid voices once in a while, but his message is kind of bland. I like your people, and I'm, I'm, I'm indifferent with the way they worship, with who they worship. And so on and so on and so on. Church gatherings, church community can drift and drift and drift further and further away from the anchor and purpose of meaning. Friends, if you're unchristian here, but especially those who are Christian and were raised in the church, I'm curious, who, how many were raised in the church? Gone to church the whole life. Sunday schools, and if you were really into church, we'd go Wednesday nights. But if you were on fire, you'd go Sunday nights. Remember those? Anybody do that? I was there every day. Every day. But I don't know about you, but for me, there was just an immediate acceptance to the church's existence. There was an immediate acceptance. This is just what church is. This is what we do on the weekend. I was on staff for a church at a church for years before I ever stopped to ask the question, what is all of this for? I was on staff at church for years before I stopped and say, what in the world are we doing? Isn't that like rule number one of joining any organization? To discover why you're here? Discover why we're here? To discover what I'm selling, what you're selling, what the vision or mission may be? Even in this moment, I'll pull you into that. Do you actually know why we're here? For those of you who consider yourself part of this community, why are you here? Some of you have moved from different parts of Los Angeles to be a part of this. Some of you have moved from different parts of the country to be part of this. Have you perhaps forgotten why you are here? There's got to be something. I was thinking, there's got to be something cooler to do than be here on Sunday night, right? You guys can be home. There's got to be an award show on somewhere in LA, or you guys could be home watching the debate, which is probably way more entertaining than this. So why are we here on Sunday night? Again, I'm going to beat it over our heads. What are we doing? Now, for a disclaimer, everything I've said is obviously more of a general realization of the current church climate, but this isn't true of every individual and local church in this city or in this country. But I do mention it so that we may say with conviction, hear me now, so that we may hear with, say with conviction, God forbid that we ever make this church, collective church, about us, about what we're doing, about our plans or our purposes or our possessions or our procedures or our preferences or any other P word that a pastor may want to use. 
So because of all that, like we've been saying, the next five weeks, we're hitting pause on the book of Acts and focusing our attention on the family of God, the bride of Christ, the church body, like it says in 1 Corinthians 12, or the community of redeemed people, also known as, very simply, the church. I encourage you to make these weeks, as much as possible, a massive priority. A massive priority as well, because as Lorenzo already said, I mean, this is the month that we actually turn like one years old, or it's an anniversary or birthday, whatever silly thing we want to call it, no matter what, we've been around for like 12 months as a fully expressed church. So what we'll be covering is, yes, celebrations from the past, but at the same time, looking forward to the year and years ahead. But as we were doing this, as Lorenzo and I were talking, we just didn't get together and go, you know, it'd be a lot of fun. A church series in a church. We, that's not what we had in mind. Friends, this must, friends, friends, this must be more than some sermon series about the church. Where we just leave thinking, neat Bible study. Let's go get Koji beef. There has to be more than that. This has to be more. We are calling everybody. We are calling everybody here to a deeper reality of what it means for our everyday lives. Otherwise, this is meaningless. This is meaningless. And for a church, a meaningless existence means we become weak and soft and damaged and brittle like Vangina. And finding our answer to our purpose will actually come way of a question. A question that should take any church from meaningless to meaningful, depending on the way you or I or we answer it. It shakes everything. Read the question with me in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. By the way, just a special note because it's sort of special. These are the exact verses. If you remember that if you were there at our very first Sunday that I taught on, different message, don't worry. Everybody's like, oh, Lord. But this is the exact (laughs) verses. So that's sort of special. Let's read the question that exposes sort of where we're at or our answer of our purpose and so many other things. And when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? I love that question. If you're here not a Christian, I can almost guarantee you formed an opinion about Jesus. And I'm not saying that it's even a bad one, but the opinion is there nonetheless. And here, Jesus is asking for our opinions, because that is something we all got. Opinions. Some of us may not have jobs or girlfriends or patients or friends or whatever, but opinions, we got. So when somebody's like, give me your opinion, and you're like, put your seatbelt on. (laughs) So we got opinions, and we love to give them, post them, blog them, tweet them. So here the disciples are like, you got it, Jesus. Some say you're a prophet. Some say a teacher, a wise guru, rabbi. Some say you're a Republican. You're anti-this, pro-this. You're a hippie. You're a fraud. You're X, Y, and Z. And they rattle off this giant list. Look at verse 14. Some say John the Baptist or Elijah. And others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now clearly what's easily understood with their responses that should shed a little bit of light on us right now, here now, is that it is possible for mankind to have good thoughts about Christ. Elijah, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, those are great thoughts. I'd love to be considered one of those guys. That's incredible. 
It's possible to have good thoughts about Jesus and yet not right thoughts, not the right ones. But Jesus presses them further. He goes, okay, you know, that's what the world says. Look at verse 15. But, he says, but, who do you say that I am? Okay, 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 okay. but who do you say that I am? You can feel the urgency in Jesus' words. There's this come on to this moment. Now, there are, um, if you think about it, some extremely important questions in life, right? Will you marry me? One of the most important questions in life. Uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? One of the most important questions in life. Do you want that supersized? One of the most important questions in life. But hands down, and I'm going to say this strongly, confidently, this is the question. This question. This is the most crucial question that could ever be asked. Friends, this is not an overstatement. Who in the world do you say that Jesus is? This is not an overstatement at all. This is the decisive matter that determines the conviction and the shape and the content of one's entire existence and eternity. Do you know your answer? Are you writing it down? Is it in your heart? As, as Christians, this is a question that we must perpetually ask, right? Isn't this a question that we must constantly ask? In hospital waiting rooms, who is Jesus? When our hearts are broken, who is Jesus? When we're about to lose it, who is Jesus? When we've lost it all, who is Jesus? Let's see how they respond, the disciples. Simon Peter replied, and Peter speaks up first, no real surprise there. So Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You remember those moments in high school where you had, like, actually get the gusto to respond to the teacher out loud and they look at you and they go, exactly! I've personally never felt it. <laughs> the teacher always with me was like, oh yeah, champ. But I've heard the teacher do it with other kids and it's very encouraging. <laughs> Friends, that is this moment. It's exactly, Peter. Exactly. Look how Jesus responds. He says, and I tell you, whenever that happens in the Bible or somebody uses those words or Jesus uses that word, our ears should perk up. I tell you, pay attention, this is important. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my what? My church. See, from this identification of Jesus, we discover our identity. From our response, we determine our future. From this understanding, we begin to understand everything else. Just so everybody knows, commentators and theologians have deemed chapter 16 of the Gospel of Matthew the most discussed chapter, paragraph, and verse in all of the Gospel, what we're reading right now. Because a right understanding of what we're about to crack open changes everything. It changes everything everything. See, most people freak out when they read Christ's response. Because somehow, get this, you guys, are you guys picking up on Somehow life's most pivotal question is then related to the church. 
Life's most pivotal question, you said, Casey, is now related to the church. Something seemingly what? Weak, soft, damaged. For the disciples in this time, they knew the Messiah, that's what the name Christ means, was coming to build. Like this Messiah is going to show up with like a tool belt on. They knew it. So the disciples are hearing Jesus in the moment and they're hanging on his every word. They're thinking, finally, he's telling us. Jesus is like, I will. And they're like, yeah, come on, build. Here it comes, my, bring it, baby. And then he says, church. What? What? No, 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 Jesus. You mean you're going to build your regime, your castle, your new government. That's what you're going to build. You said the word church, silly. You're here to rip apart the Roman rules, the Roman rule, the Roman, you know, the Roman regime. And you're here to be the rightful king. Like from Scar to Simba, that's you. You're Simba, Jesus. But to build a church, that strikes us as odd. Strikes most of us odd, maybe I can say. To build a church? So you think about it, so if we slow down, so Jesus, you came. Let me get this straight. Jesus, you came to start a church service. Jesus, you came to put, you know, pallet walls behind a stage. That's what you came to do. Jesus, you came to start a greeting ministry. Jesus, you came to start a children's ministry. That's what you came to do? Well, obviously, no, of course not. That's not what he came to do. Christ came to build his church, not close on escrow or whatever. See, Jesus' church is none other than a committed community of people who make the same authentic proclamation that Peter has just made. Jesus is not building a place. He's building a people. The church is not a place where, but a people who, something that we've probably dripped in your brains, hopefully a lot. So hear me on this, and this is how the Bible lays it out. If you're going to walk away with anything tonight, walk away with this. That's like a preacher's tactic to get you to pay attention. And I'll say it like 20 times. No, walk with it. This one, this one, this point. So this is it. I'm serious though. <laughs> this is it. That if we claim Peter's proclamation, if we claim that, yeah, yeah, Jesus, you are Christ, the son of the living God. If we claim Peter's proclamation as our own, then we claim all that it comes with. I really want this to sink in. If we say, yes, you are Christ, the son of the living God. We are claiming all that that comes with. Let me say it again. You are Christ, the Son of the living God. We are claiming all that it comes with because what immediately follows Peter's proclamation was what? Christ's proclamation. And I tell you, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. On this great confession, I will build my people. We know that Roman Catholicism would say, see, Peter is the first pope, but we have no history to back that up. What we believe and what we know to be true right here or right now is he's not building it on Peter because in just a few verses, Peter is about to do something really foolish and Jesus is going to look him right in the eyes and say, get behind me, Satan. This is not about Peter. This is about Peter's confession. It's called the great confession. This is what this little moment is called. See, the Messiahship, the divine life and death of Jesus is the very nucleus of this community. It is the very nucleus of this community, of collective church, of you and I. And hear me now, if that ever changes, 
run as fast as you can from this church. If that ever changes once, leave. Please go. If Jesus ever stops being core nucleus center of collective church. See, Peter's response unfolds the deepest reality of what makes a church, of what makes us, of what makes us. It's beautiful. Christ's proclamation, the biblical reality of the church, and all that comes with it is now our own. That simply being community and mission and disciple-making and other things we'll discuss in the coming weeks. Again, this is what we're calling people. If we make Peter's proclamation, again, I'm saying it again, then we claim all that it comes with. But sadly, sadly, far too often this body, right? That's another word for the church. This body we're connected to, the physical body of Christ. What happens is it becomes diseased. See, it's called the body many times throughout the Bible, but this body can get very, very sick. Local bodies get very, very sick, leaving the body weak, soft, damaged, or brittle. So for the next few moments, I want to talk about three infections. If I could talk about three infections that can kill the body and kill the church. And this happens with the wrong application of Peter's proclamation, or if people just choose to ignore it for their own lives, the first infection is compromise. Basically, I'm going to define compromise so that we're all on the same page, to set and accept standards that are lower than is desirable in our life. To set and accept standards that are lower than is desirable in our life. But we're going to talk about it this way. And it's essentially to be committed to Christ, but compromise his bride, the church. To be committed to Jesus, pumped on Jesus, and compromise the church. Friends, I am here to say there can be no such thing. There are no sadder words than an unchurched Christian. That, that is an oxymoron. That is a compromised life from the perspective of heaven. See, where I want to love Jesus, but that doesn't necessarily mean I want the church. No, 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 no. You can't like Sonny and hate Cher. You can't like Ricky and not be pumped on Lucy. Like, it comes together. Does anybody even know the Ricky and Lucy illustration I just gave? All right. All the ladies. Good job. I say this gently, but I say it firmly. I say this gently, but I say it firmly. To be pro-Jesus and anti-church, the biblical church, is to stand in direct contradiction of the Bible. There can be no such thing. Christ builds the church, not man. Christ created the institution, not man. Christ created this organization, not man reject any part of his church laid out in the Bible is to reject the whole of Jesus. The Bible would even go as far to say that to neglect even just this, to even just neglect this gathering, this hour and a half on Sunday, the Bible goes far to say that just a small time together is to forget the judgment day that is drawing near. Look at these heavy words from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised it uh, promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to another to love and good works. And here's the point I want to make right here, verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Does anyone or does any of this apply to anybody here in this room? The compromise. I like Jesus. I like spirituality. Deuces to the church. This flows, I think, nicely into the second infection, and that being consumerism. Consumerism would be the second infection that can kill the body. I'm, trying, I'm just trying to make it as simple and easy as possible. We're just going to say it up front. See, the first is to compromise our faith and reject the community of Christ that Christ built. The second is to solely consume the community that Christ built. See, consumerism is something we are all very familiar with. We're all familiar with it. Our culture breeds consumerism. Media and film, the arts and music, relationships and sex, we breathe it in. We consume it, especially Los Angeles. This is a giant consumeristic tornado we live in. But what happens then, so many bring that posture into the church community. And it can and often is, I'm gonna use a very heavy word that might really upset people, is parasitic. That is parasitic. To consume is parasitic. To be connected, but only to take. Like I'm connected to the body, but I only suck. I'm connected to the body. It's like a vampire. You see, consumerism is slimy. It's really slimy. It has the appearance of presence while lacking in engagement. When I come to the gatherings, that's, yeah, I like the music. That's about, that's about it. See, presence does not equal participation. The Bible calls us to something more than filling seats. Again, think of just the gathering. I just want to talk because this is so practical. It's so tangible. It's right here. But obviously the church is so much more than the gathering. But I just want to use it as an example. To think about the gathering, it's like what? An hour and a half every Sunday, which equals, anybody know how to do math? 75, 78 hours throughout the year, right? Is that how you do division? I have no idea. There's no way, if that's all it was, was 75 hours out of the year, that that was God's, that's all God had in mind. That's all God, that's, that, he, that he has such a limited plan for his people. It's so much more than that. See, most people attend, again, we're just talking about the gathering for a moment. Most people attend a church gathering to, uh, not to give. They attend not to give. They, we don't come with a mindset naturally just intrinsically to give. We see it as a time to receive or what's really hip in like the Christian circles to say is I'm showing up to be fed. I want to be fed. I'm coming hungry. Yeah. Now, the pastor doesn't feed me. I'm just going to say here now, pastors aren't supposed to feed you. I heard this great thing. Shepherds will take sheep to the field, but they're not sticking grass in their mouth. Eat this. Eat this. You need to be fed. Pastors, preachers, Whatever. Leaders, they lead them to these places so that they can be fed, yes, from the word of God. 
But I want to be honest. I mean, I, I don't know if I want us to come just be fed and leave all fat and bloated. I want us to leave more hungry, more thirsty for what God would have. Again, I don't want us to just think that even just this small amount of time of what the church is, is for us to con- come and uh, consume religious goods and services. This, my friends, in my opinion of how the Bible would talk about church, that would be unhealth in the purest form. Mark Sayers, who is a pastor in Australia, he has this to say on the subject. He goes, the elephant in the living room of contemporary Christianity is people's ability to simply sit in the church, to consume the experience the way one would a great sporting event, a thrilling movie or an exciting theme park ride. And then, and this breaks my heart, to dispose of it, totally unchanged at the soul level as they leave the sanctuary. Sure, they might feel challenged. You might feel encouraged or even moved but the horizontal self simply feels the experience. And what? Moves on. This is not what Christ, the builder of the church, has in mind. What the builder of the collective church, what even the builder of the collective church has in mind, that is Jesus. If we are to become the kind of church that, that's, you know, to, to be all that Christ would want from a church, that Christ has built up in the church, consumerism has to be surgically dug out of our hearts. For our impact and for our survival, there must be a cosmic shift in how we approach this community that Christ has built. It has to be a seismic, cosmic, earthquake type of shift in how we approach the community that Jesus has built. Again, not that we have built, not that we have built, that Christ has built. The church was built to be a self-giving entity, a selfless community. We must be and we must become ready to give and not just receive. Again, I just want to ask it point blank. Does this apply to anybody in this room? Don't say it out loud. And the last infection, it's a a spawn of consumerism, and it's that of choice. So compromise, consumerism, and choice. See, compromise is to reject the community altogether. Consumerism is to reject uh, community participation, but choice is to reject the community as it is. A news source recently, uh, I think the paper's called Religion and Ethics Newsweekly, uh, likened the disease of choice within the church, they likened it to the American shopping mall. Church in America has become like a shopping mall, or church is have become like a shopping mall. That, that is revolting. Meaning we can go from outlet to outlet to outlet like a buffet. Now, don't get me wrong. I love buffets. Love them. But not in the church. See, we shop and we hunt for products that serve our stage of life, serve us, our perspective, our, our you, know, the, you know, the people here are too young or the people there are too old. We talk about sin too much. We don't talk about sin enough. We talk about the Bible too much. We don't talk about the Bible enough. We talk about, the, we don't talk about the Spirit enough. We talk about the Spirit too much. Well, you're too affirming. You're not affirming enough. And what happens is this choice grows like mold and soon it covers over our local commitment. 
Choice is like a mold that will cover over local body church commitment. There's that word that we hate, right? Commitment. Friends, may we be aware of picking and choosing what we like from different churches. Comparing them and growing cynical. And hear me now, I am preaching 100% to myself. I don't think there's anybody more cynical of other churches than pastors. I am unbelievably cynical and I get busted at all the time in my own heart. But this church had their worship, but that preacher with that kid's ministry and that building with that, now that would be like, you know, the Megatron of churches or Optimus Prime or rather, Optimus Prime of churches. I want us to be aware of and just say it now so that you guys know where Collective Church stands on this as we're going through this very, very practical series called The Church. It's very simple. I want us to be aware of something. If we act upon choice, meaning, well, I go to this church on Sunday mornings because I like the Bible teaching, but then I go here on Sunday nights because I like the worship. And then Thursdays I attend their community groups and then Fridays is a life group that's pretty dope. And then Mondays, I go to AA. I'm not even an alcoholic, but I go. It's good. I like the coffee and donuts. If we start doing that type of stuff, those type of choices naturally force consumerism. We must be careful. Again, in church lingo, that's what so many can easily call double dipping. Double dipping. Oh, I'm part of this church on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and I'm part of this church Sundays and Saturdays. It's double dipping. It's dangerous. So you know what's amazing? I want us to get this, and we're talking about choice. You know what's amazing about Christ's words here? It's not just what he says, but where he says them. Look at verse 13 again. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, if we don't slow our roll and look at the geographical context, then we can miss out on something very, very meaningful. Because at first glance, what does it sound like when we're reading scriptures, reading the Bible, where Jesus is going? Jesus traveled all over the place. He was like a nomad. He was going all over the place. And so Jesus went to another neighboring district. But not so here. If we look closer and do the math, having just come from a certain place to Caesarea Philippi, this means that Jesus has decided to take his disciples on a 32-mile round trip. Basically like us walking to Whittier from here. But get this. This This is awesome and fun. This being the only recorded trip Jesus ever took to that region, or anywhere remotely like it. It's literally the northern border of the threshold of like Israel to the rest of the world. So the question that leaves us as we read, we go, why? Why would Jesus go through all of that walking? I hate walking, right? I hate standing here right now. Why would he go through all of this walking 32 miles to make the point that you're the builder of the church? Well, if you know there's not, there was a massive, this was a massive like Greco-Roman society with a huge, huge pagan population. See, if a person was searching for the most symbolic place to represent the world's problem with idolatry and sin, where one could choose the God they want to worship, where one could choose how they want to worship this God, where one could choose where they want to worship this God, Caesarea Philippi is the place. 
Theologian Michael Green says this about the location. It is as if most of the streams of various ancient religions converged here. Christ uses the most extreme object lesson with his disciples and travels to a city that is moralistically filthy and rich with God's idol pagan religion, basically a buttload of churches. And it's here Jesus talks about his church that he's going to build. On this here, they're looking out. Jesus, what did you, what are you bring us here for? And they sit down and they're standing, however it was. And he goes, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And in the distance, they can see everything. They can see this region. And what, what are we doing here? It's almost as if Christ wants us to run into the mess as a church. It's almost as if Christ wants to build his church, which is not about our own little kingdoms. Christ wants us to build a church that is not about our little kingdoms. It's almost as if he wants us, wants this church not to be centered on our own choices, but on Christ. It's almost as if Christ wants us to feel the pressure of what it means to be a part of the church. It's almost as if Christ wants us to not operate as an American shopping mall, but as a hospital for the hurting. It's almost as if the church exists far more than for our pleasure and entertainment. Now, I I hope I'm making some strong points and and inspiring, and if the Holy Spirit is convicting, okay, great. But I do want to give, I want to preface some of this about choice. So you are to look for a church that aligns with your biblical convictions. You are to do that. You are to even look for the right church out of multiple good churches. If somebody were to say, tell me about a good church on the west side, I could give them a long list. There are incredible churches here on the west side. We are not the best. We are not the brightest. We are not the most clever. We we don't have the best music. We don't have the best preaching, whatever. There are incredible churches here on the west side. The point is that we are to be committed members We are to be committed members participating in a local church, period. See, if we're still looking for a church after much time, something else is at play. I've had many conversations. I'm still shopping for a church. See, shopping is okay, but then find a local church and pour your life into it. To find people who are still shopping after years upon years upon years, something else is at play. I like the way my boy John, Pastor John Stott, says it better. He says it's so awesome and a little harsh, but I like it. He goes, I am assuming that we are all committed to the church. That is an assumption of the New Testament, just so you know. The New Testament writers, the New Testament operates with the assumption that everybody is committed to the local church. See, we are not only Christian people, we are also church people. We're not only committed to Christ, we are also committed to the body of Christ. At least I hope so. I trust that none of my readers uh, is that grotesque anomaly, an unchurched Christian. The New Testament knows nothing of such a person. The church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. Now, if I, in closing, can address a very specific group of people, very small group of people in this room that make up both Christian and probably unchristian who are here tonight. And it's those of you who have been badly beaten up by the church. 
obviously don't know your situation, but I am grieved by it. I mean that. I've had conversations with a good handful of you who've basically had a bat over the head from a church. Um, and again, it breaks my heart. And so as I'm saying all these things about the local church, and yet these strings in your heart are like, yeah, but this, this happened to me, and you want me to pour my life or commit? I totally get it. See, know this. Any way that the church is unbiblically dealt with you is not a true reflection of Christ's love or intention in how he built the church. I know firsthand what it means to be bruised and beaten by a church. I know firsthand. It is ugly and it is bloody and it is painful and it takes a long time to heal. Because this is a place where we are safe and vulnerable and then to have that swiped out from underneath us where a safe place immediately becomes an unsafe place, that is a, that is a hard spot to be in. And what's crazy is my heart breaks even more because what has supposed to help us in those moments that Christ has set up along with his Holy Spirit to comfort us, to exhort us, to encourage us, to inspire us, to stir us up, to care for us, to be a community, to love us, whatever, is the church. So it's just weird, disgusting, when we're beaten by the church, catch 22, where I can't go back to the church. I would beg of you, and I would love to talk with you, so would Pastor Lorenzo, we have incredible people part of this church, would love to talk with you about what it means to not shun the church as a whole. Because possibly what you may think the church is may not be the church that Jesus has desired to build. And that might even be true of Jesus. The Jesus that possibly you are rejecting is not the true Jesus that we see in the pages of Scripture, pages of the Bible. And so I will also say this. If you are looking for the perfect church, uh, you will not find it. It's like playing Where's Waldo, and Waldo's not in the pages. It is just not there, and it's just frustrating. So we hop, and we hop, and we hop, and we hop. There is no such thing as a perfect church. So my small encouragement tonight as we're going through this is to find an imperfect church and be there. And again, just so everyone knows, it doesn't have to be with us. If somebody's looking for a church right now, this doesn't have to be with us. But everything that I have said from the Bible that I believe is biblical, I'd say go do that there. Take everything and go do that there. It doesn't have to be with us. We're in no competition with this church that lets us use their space. There's no competition with other incredible churches, Jesus proclaiming churches. We are team Jesus. Same name on the jersey. It's the only sports reference I know how to use. This is what the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, would say to somebody who is shunning an imperfect church or perhaps even been beaten badly by a church. This is what he says to us, and it brings tears to my eyes, but he just says, give yourself to the church. He goes, still imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth. All who have given themselves to the Lord should as speedily as possible, also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on earth? I would also say this. If you are part, or if you've been hurt, or you're frustrated, frustrated about certain avenues or things in the church, whatever, 
we would want you to know, Pastor Lorenzo and I would want you to know that you can help make this community or that community, whatever, what it should be. See, if we want this to be a loving place, I would put back on you. You, you are to love. If we want this to be an evangelistic place, immediately we're going to look to one another and first to you to go, are you evangelizing? I want, I want somebody to reach my neighbors, an outreach or whatever it could possibly be, is to see my neighbors transformed. We would say, be with your neighbor. Be with your neighbor. Be a part of what can make this better and allow us to slash compromise consumerism and choice. So we want to be a church that reaches the world. Let's give financially. Or if we want to be more than just music and kids ministry or whatever, I would just say, just be a part of it. To quote Charles Spurgeon, give yourself to an imperfect church. We are not a perfect church. I am not a perfect pastor. Lorenzo's not a perfect pastor. And if you've known me long enough, you guys are probably given a hearty amen. Mm-hmm. We are a mess in a lot of ways. But get this, that's what makes up the church. Messy people in a messy situation with a God who loves us, not as we should be, but exactly as we are in that mess. Again, it's like the Caesarea. Imagine, like, it's, imagine playing in a church right in the heart of Caesarea Philippi. That's what Jesus is all about, running into the mess. That's what makes a church so beautiful. That's what makes a mess in the hands of Jesus beautiful. See, where we would all maybe say or know our past or whatever, we would say, I'm a mess or I'm an addict or I'm an abuser or I'm a drunkard, I'm self-righteous, I'm legalistic, I'm an outcast, I'm forgotten, I'm beaten up, and I'm no good to anybody. If we would ever go down that list of our lives, Christ would never, ever say that about us. Christ would say, no, 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 no. You are my beloved, you are mine, and I have purchased you with my blood. See, churches are a statement to the watching world that Jesus loves us, that the Messiah has come for us. Not when we are at our best, but when we are at our worst, Jesus died for us. So as we continue on in these next four weeks, I want us to take some of the weight that we have tonight and actually weigh it on the scales of our life, of our participation, of our engagement, and ask what type of church do we want? It's not what type of church I want. I didn't build this church. I didn't do this. What type of church do we want? What type of church do you want? I don't want a church that's meaningless. Yuck, yuck. That's disgusting. We can do better things with our time. What type of church do we want? We desire to be a church, an individual that can boldly and back up the proclamation that you, Jesus, or the Christ, the Son, the living God. Amen? Join with me in prayer.